The who, why, and how of theater we are making right now. An inside look at Barter Theater. A year-round repertory theater in Abingdon, Virginia. This is Theater Matters. This is Theater Matters. This is Theater Matters. This is Theater Matters. Theater Matters! <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Theater Matters. I'm your host, Kenny Davis, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Barter Theater's playwright-in-residence, Catherine Bush. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kenny. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So start by telling us about yourself and what brought you to Barter Theater. Well, I've been at Barter 10 years now, which 10 plus, which I can hardly believe. Um, so I was a playwright living in New York, or a rather a, a struggling playwright, a yearning to be a playwright living in New York City, and Barter had had just started its Appalachian Festivals of Plays and Playwrights, AFPP. And I had a play called The Other Side of the Mountain, and I submitted, and that was back in 2002, and they picked it for the 2003 AFPP. So I came down here um, to see the reading in 2003, and uh, it, went, it went really well. And then uh, in 2004, they did the mini production. And then in 2005, I had another play submitted. And in 2006, I had a mini production going on. And the AFPP, I had, uh, I had a play being done at Barter during the summer called I'll Never Be Hungry Again, a musical spoof of Gone with the Wind. So that was playing. I had a, a mini production going on I had and two more readings. So at this point, Rick thought it would be cheaper to bring me down to Barter <laughs> than to pay for all those trips to see shows. So in 2007, I came on board as the playwright in residence, and I've been here ever since. So how did you become a playwright? Oh, wow. Well, therein lies a tale. I, first of all, I should confess right now that my major was industrial technology in, in college. So I was many things. Things, but certainly had nothing to do with theater. And then in 1990-something, um, I don't even remember which year, I, I really don't remember, no, 1980-something, I went to London with a friend of mine to see his sister who was stationed over there, and, and we saw Phantom of the Opera on the West End. It was the first time I'd ever seen a show of that caliber in a space of that caliber, and I just fell in love with theater. I'd been raised on show tunes by my mom, but this was like really exhilarating to me. So I started going to see a lot of theater. I was living near Lexington, Kentucky at the time. So I'd go up to Cincinnati to the, the, to the touring shows. And then in, in I guess, the 1993, I decided that um, I wanted to be an actor in New York. With absolutely, now, now keep in mind, no, I had some community theater experience. I got involved in my community theater after I'd, I'd been to London. I had no business going to New York probably, but then, you know, I have... I did it, and I'm so glad I did. I got into the I auditioned for, and got into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts up there, um, and, and I was fairly lousy. But one thing that I, I learned in New York was I went to see a lot of plays there as well, and I I saw for as many good plays as I saw I saw probably ten times as many crappy plays. And you know I got out of school, and um, again I wasn't very good, but I'm auditioning, auditioning, got landed some really small, way the hell off Broadway parts, and then um, I started writing. I started, I thought, you know, even I can do better than this. And so I started adapting um, Gone with the Wind into a parody, into a, a musical parody. And that's that's how the whole thing started. And so I, I got to the point where I really enjoyed writing a lot more than acting because you can control your destiny a bit more with writing. You, you know, you're always waiting for the phone to ring as an actor. And as a writer, I could still wait for the phone to ring, but be writing something and be creative. And it was that great creative outlet. And I... I got I, I read a lot of good plays and um, that was kind of my education. I never took a writing class, but I I lucked into writing a few good plays that brought me to barter. And since then, I have been under the tutelage of a lot of great dramaturgs down here. Most most 
especially John Hardy, who is a um, artistic associate at Barter. Uh, I started writing for the Barter Players, who are the plays for young audiences here. They do young audience uh, theater. And he, John was my mentor for a lot of it. And I learned, I mean, that was probably my grad school crash course in playwriting. John, and not just John, John and Katie Brown and Nick Piper and Rick Rose. It's it's interesting, but they'll all give me something different that I there's something to glean from all of them but the taskmaster was John for sure and that's what and that's how I ended up here that's that is a great tale indeed yeah so you've talked a lot about theater tell us why theater matters to you oh gosh well um when I first got into theater it probably wasn't for a noble purpose I I just loved it I loved the stories I loved the way being in the room with actors telling the stories made me feel as an audience member. So there's that. And then um, when I got involved in community theater and then set on stage, it was like, the, oh gosh, it's so cliche, but it was, um, you know, just having people laugh at something you've said. As an actor, I used to think that it was something I said. As a playwright, it's I know it's because something I wrote. I <laughs> Go ahead and take credit, actors, but I know it's really me. Yeah, so... <laughs> so um, so it was that. And then when I came to Barter, I was taught, and or I learned rather, the what, serv- what theater really is, which is service. Like any job you do in this world, on this planet, if you attach it to service somehow and, and make it not about you, suddenly it just makes your work better because your ego has to be taken out of it. And you're like, I can change kids' lives with these plays, or I can make an adult who is going through a bad time come to the theater and laugh and be in the room with laughter, or I can create a situation that a lot of people have faced in their life and create empathy for another point of view in the story. And it becomes a noble pursuit. So theater matters to me because the stories we keep telling to our audiences and, and bringing our audiences into that live situation where they're breathing the same air as the actors and, and, and they are in the room with the story, that will uh, evoke imagination. It will create empathy. It will give people access to a point of view they may, might not have ever seen or heard before. And that's really cool. It's very important. It is. As a playwright in residence here at Barter, what all does that encompass? Oh, well, I, I have the best gig here at Barter Theater. Um, uh, some of my more uh, technical duties, there aren't many, thank goodness, but some are, would be to um, write the study guides for the shows that student audiences come to see, things of that nature. But mostly my job is to Rick commissions a play or Katie Brown for the play, Art Barter Players commissions a play, and I sit in my kitchen and write them. And I whine a lot. <laughs> Jealous? <laughs> Sometimes I'll give talks at the library. I'll go to openings and talk, you know, talking to the patrons and getting their points of view. Uh, reading AFPP plays that are submitted. That's another thing that I do. But for the most part, I'm in my kitchen whining about, I don't know how to do this, blah, 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 blah. I don't, actually, it's a great gig. It's the best. It's the best on the planet. And I know there are many envious playwrights out there who wish they had it and they're going to have to wait until I die to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> you, you speak a little bit about whining in the most humorous sense, but what are some unique challenges that you face as a playwright and how do you overcome them? Oh, um, well, it, it depends uh, what I'm writing, I suppose. Deadlines, 
are probably a challenge. I mean, I guess every writer faces deadlines. Uh, most pro- most people probably do have a deadline at work. Um, uh, it, gosh, Kenny, that's a great question. Uh, people talk about writer's block. I don't normally have that. What I think my greatest challenge, and, and I, I don't think I'm alone on this, but I'll, I'll be brave enough to say it, is probably procrastination. When you are in a, when you are on your own time, you know what I mean. I'm not doing a nine to five. My day can stretch from nine to nine, but that's not all writing. A lot of that is procrastinating or making lunch or taking a break to do this or that. But to structure my own work time is my biggest challenge. Uh, when I was living in New York, I had a day job to pay the bills. And uh, when I have more on my plate, I'm much, I, I tend to be much more structured. I did better in college when I took a lot more credit hours than when I took 12, when I took 21. I mean, I, you have to, when you have to structure your time, you're just better at it. At least I am. Um, so probably the biggest challenge I face is my deadline might be a year away, but how do I work on that play today? It, it, and, and it's not always just sitting down and writing. Uh, right now, I'm, uh, we're hoping to adapt Moby Dick for the Barter Player Tour 2019. So I'm reading Moby Dick. And, you know, that's a long way away. But Moby Dick ain't, ain't a small book. And I'm probably whining more about reading. I love to read. And I'm like, this thing is like a two-thirds of a whaling manual and then a third action. So <laughs> so the, that's an obstacle, like getting the routine done down every day of what are you going to work on and then indeed working on it. I had a horrible addiction for a while to a, a procrastinative technique called Microsoft Solitaire, Online Solitaire, that finally at Lent I gave it up and I haven't picked it up back since, but but it was like I would spend more time doing that than I, you know, because I told myself I was giving my brain a chance to rest and all that, but it was just because I'm a big, huge procrastinator. I would say that's my biggest challenge, and overcoming it is is a daily struggle. I have not overcome it. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> sure, Kenny, I'll talk to you. It means I don't have to read Moby Dick today, <laughs> or at least not right now. So, So I guess structuring my own time. So what are the differences between writing an original play like Ghost, Ghost, Come Out Tonight and adapting one such as Clementine? I have two shows running at Barter right now. Uh, Ghost, Ghost, Come Out Tonight is a murder mystery playing at stage two until until November sometime. Uh, That's open and running. And then Clementine the Musical is based on the Clementine book series by Sarah Pennypacker. First of all, let me start with adapting, which I absolutely love to do for because it is for you have somebody else's work, somebody else's story, but taking that and making that a dramatic piece versus a reflective literary piece. It's just like it's kind of mathematical in a way, and it's picking and choosing. I get to pick my perspective on this story and tell it through the lens of a certain character. Clementine is not just adapted from one book, it's adapted from seven. So I was I got to pick and choose which elements from which story I was going to put in our musical. Somebody else adapting it could pick a totally different lens through which to look at this piece. So that's fun for me. I, I'm going to say this. I think I'm a pretty good playwright, but I think I'm a really great adapter. And I don't think I'm great at a lot of things. That might be the only thing I might be great at besides procrastinating <laughs> is adapting. But it, it is. It's a different skill set. So you're looking at, um, you, you have this story, and you're, you're saying, okay, I have this, this amount of time to tell it. 
you know, before I completely lose my audience, I have to look at the pieces that are action oriented versus um, descriptive and um, expositional. So I have to, I have information I need to get to the audience. I have to create circumstances if they're not in the book to go from point A to point B. If they are in the book, which circumstances are going to come when? You know, I tried to follow the order of the book, but there are sometimes I would pulse just maybe two sentences from book five and put it in the section that is more related to book two, you know, just to to get information to the audience. So that that is like taking a puzzle that's put together, busting it all up and putting a different puzzle together, a shorter, smaller puzzle. I don't think I whine as much about adapting as I do about creating my own piece. So Rick commissioned um, Ghost Ghost Come Out Tonight uh, last year in October based on a title. It, it, Ghost Ghost Come Out Tonight is a game I played as a kid in our neighborhood at, at dark, you know, where it's kind of hide and seek in reverse. And hide and seek, everyone hides and one per- the seeker has to go find them. One person is the seeker. And Ghost Ghost Come Out Tonight, the ghost hides and everybody has to split up. Everybody else splits up and goes to find them. And... Um, it's scary. You know, it's scary. It's at night. And so I told Rick about that, you know, because you're always aiming, trying to find what your next job's going to be. You know, that's another thing. Rick doesn't doesn't have to commission anything from me. You know, he's not obligated to, but he does. And uh, I appreciate that greatly. And so he said, OK, I like that title. Write me an outline of a play. And I'm like, ah. So I, I came up with an outline, a ghost story. And I don't want to go into it too much, but outlined it, sent it to me. He goes, yeah, write that. And so uh, I'm like, okay, right. So I'm following my outline and trying to tell this story. And um, I would like to say that my first drafts, I suffer enough on my first drafts to make them really excellent. But this one, you know, you're like, I've got to get. Here's the other deadlines that people don't know about when you're writing a play is, especially a barter. They have the, the set designers, and the costume designers and the designers have to have a copy of that script so they can get their designs in in a timely fashion here. We're, we work in rep. Everyone's busy. They don't t- have time for me to play Microsoft Solitaire online, you know. They need me to get them a script. So that pressure, sometimes I will work well under it. Sometimes I do not do my best work. So I, I got my first draft done. I'm like, okay, th- this is wrong. So I'm going to go ahead and admit it, but you should never do this. I'm like, this is good enough for them to get an idea of the set design. That is not what your first draft should be. I should do better than that, but I, I didn't. I was writing Clementine at the time. So you're trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get two things done. No excuse. I'm just trying to explain. Uh, so Rick looked at it and he and he met me at Zazzy's and we're talking about my first draft. He goes, I hate it. And I'm like, oh, man. And I just, you know, Rick, he goes, you know, I hate it. And then uh, there's parts I love, but I hate it. And then he, he expressed what, what he didn't like. And it was really interesting. He said, in the original draft, I had this, I don't know if our audience is familiar with stage two, but it's a small space and there's not a lot of room for maneuverability and set changing scenes, et cetera. You have much more of that option at main stage. So he's like, you have this play starting at this campfire scene and then we go into the woods. He goes, how, what are we going to do with the campfire? What are we going to do with this thing? He goes, I said, so what are you saying? I should set this in a living room? He goes, no, no. I mean, then he gave me this great note. He said, things are much scarier when your home is invaded. Then when you go outside your home, like when things are knocking on your door, he goes, make the campfire scene your living room. Make that the one scene and the ghost comes to you instead of you having to go to the ghost. And I just remember sitting upright going, oh, my God, wow, that's a great note. And then going back and revamping the whole play. 
revamping who did what, how it happened. I had to create a situation in which somebody is always at that campfire when they're playing that game and, and, and a reason for that. And yeah, bringing the ghost into the into the world that you think is safe. You got a fire going. I mean, cavemen knew it. They started a fire to keep the ghosts away, right? And then having a ghost still show up, scary. Yes. So so it's, it's challenges like that, like cre- absolutely out of your brain, trying to create a world from like a song title or a picture. And uh, it's also incredibly fun because you aren't limited by the story, the narrative from of a novel. So I guess I, I love the challenge of adapting because I have to follow the parameters of the novel. But once you get past the whining phase of creating a new piece and you get into the world and things start happening and you're like, wow, where did that come from? Because the characters start speaking to each other or doing things you weren't expecting or and then being able to take what, what a character said. And I, and I do mean it when I say the character says it because if you're in the zone, which is, the be- which is so cool, the characters start talking. And so a character says something and you're writing it down going, not sure where that's going to play out. And then it does play out later on. That's super cool feeling, especially when it works. When it, when it doesn't work, it's probably more frustrating. What do you do when it doesn't work? I usually go for a walk or I go buy some sort of caffeinated beverage that I probably shouldn't have and I wine. And um, sometimes you'll have to start reading from the beginning and get that momentum going again or make it work. Not make it work like it's not like you want to take a, a square peg and pound it into a round hole. You never want to do that. But usually... When something's not working, it's because the stakes aren't high enough. And by that, I mean what's at stake for the characters. And we always try to make it life and death. In Ghost Goes Come Out Tonight, there are situations which are indeed life and death. Um, But it can also mean anything. Life and death can mean I'm a 16-year-old girl who didn't get invited to prom and all my friends are going. That, that feels very life and death to a 16-year-old or to a kid who has to bring a detention note home to their parents and they know they're going to get killed. Or, you know, they literally think they're going to die when they tell their parents this. So those are the stakes. So when, when stakes are low, things don't work. And usually you can go back and say, oh, what's at stake here? That's why I can't think of anything to say is because nothing's happening. As a playwright, what brings you the most joy? Oh, easy. Being in the audience and li- listening to an audience enjoy my play, whether that audience be uh, second graders watching All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth or... Um, Adults watching Winter Wheat, you know, about the ratification of the 19th Amendment, whatever it is, like when audiences are super into your play, there's no better gift. But let me just say this first. No one is a playwright for the money because there's just not a lot of money in playwriting. You'd be a screenwriter and then you'd have to be one of a select few to actually make money or a television writer. I mean, nobody people people stick to theater through the love of theater and that. That includes every artist at Barter Theater. You you know, you love the theater. It's why you're here. Um, every artist here does what they do for the love of theater. And it's an inexplicable love that you cannot get out of your system. So you just have to resign yourself to the fact of you're never going to be wealthy. So your payment is another in other ways. I mean, I'm sure the set designer and the, the guys who build the set come to see a show and go, look at that. I made that. And... I feel similarly about my plays in that I am the first step in a big, huge collaborative process. But like watching an audience enjoy something you've written down and created out of your own head, that that's that doesn't get any better than that. 
especially, and I love our adult audiences, but especially when they're kids and they come out and their uh, their lives are changed and you, you just see their minds blown by what they've seen. A lot of them come into the theater saying, what time does the movie start? I mean, they've never seen a live play in their life. You that know? happened to me yesterday. Did it? A lady came in and said, sir, are there going to be subtitles for this movie today? Am I going to have to oh, do gracious. any reading? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> were they in the wrong place? Or, or were they there to they see They were play? really there to see the show. Oh, but... dear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so there you have it. It's not just kids. Yeah. A lot of them don't know what live theater is. And so, but you watch their little brains explode with imagination evoked and, and like joy and. I remember one teacher coming out of a um, musical I had written with Dax Dupuy called Twas the Night Before Christmas. It's one of my favorites. And a teacher came out crying at the end of it. And she looked at me. I think I'd given the curtain speech so she knew who I was. And she said, I really needed to see that today. And I don't write message plays. I don't try to beat anyone over the head with a message. But there are things in there that I hope evoke a response that gives people hope or gives people pause or gives people something to think about. Um, another great moment I had in my life, I was down at Zazie's after, um, this was back in 2007, I'd written a win- uh, Christmas play called Wooden Snowflakes for Adults, and I was there at Zazie's getting a cup of hot chocolate or something, and this gentleman who I did not know came up to me and said, I saw your play last night. Wow, I had to go home and journal. I'm like, oh, wow, well, thanks. He goes, Yeah. That's all he said was like like it was still affecting him somehow, and that those are really great. You have to cling on to those mo- those moments because there's a lot of dark time in between when you're wondering if you can do it again, and it's the best payoff payout possible. You've mentioned AFPP a little bit. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that and what you gain from the audience's reactions and responses, and oh, then wow. how you it may totally change the, the play? entire play for you. Um. Well, gosh. That's a great question. Okay, so I've had, I don't know, like five to eight plays go through AFPP. Uh, people probably don't know this, but some of them haven't even, like, have been rejected before they've even been read. The Quilt Maker was one in particular. They're like, this isn't right yet. So I had to go back. I just put it aside, left it, went and wrote another one, and then went back to it one night and found my way into what what was missing. Um, so th- that happens a lot, too. You have to put things on the back burner. The AFPP has a has two different responses. They have a, a panel of uh, theater professionals slash academics who come, and three of them will watch the play and give their feedback uh, after, after the reading. And then they will not only do that, they will, uh, Nick Piper, who's the coordinator of the AFPP, will type up all those responses and send them to you. And then you have the audience feedback as well. Some of them like it. Some of them don't like it. I have learned this as a playwright, that I try to turn myself into a screen door and let things blow through and try to catch the things that will actually help me. Like people insulting your play or people loving your play doesn't necessarily help you. But somebody saying, I didn't quite understand why this happened or that didn't read true to me. Those are the helpful things because those are the people you're, those are the, you're trying to connect to your audience. And sometimes you have a reason for doing what you do. So you have to, A, you have to have a thick skin because it is, um, it's your baby out there and it's, it's precious to you. It's come out and, and, and people don't mean to be callous or hurtful. They're just reacting, um, authentically, but, um, you, you know, you, it can hurt. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it can hurt. I've been very lucky. I've been pretty fortunate that most of them have been pretty um, positive in their responses. Uh, 
and I have learned over time to take what I need and, and to disregard the rest. Not that their opinions aren't important, but they're not important in the, to me in the, develop, the further development. So the audience response is important for another reason, though, is because it invests them in the play. They've seen this play. They've invested. You know, they, they've thought about it. So if it goes on to a mini production or full production, they'll come back and see what's changed. I, when we did Winter Wheat, for the reading, we didn't have a lot of the music written because I'd gotten the script so late to Ben. Got a lot of great feedback on Winter Wheat. A lot of things needed to change. At the mini production, Ben's music was heard, and they ha- he got a lot of criticism for his Ben. This is Ben Mackle, of whom I am speaking. He was the composer for Winter Wheat. Ben's music took a big hit, and I, I'm not sure that was fair. I think a lot of the problems that people had were actually with the way I had written the first two or three scenes, how I had arranged them and put two songs too close together that kind of had the same theme. So I cut one of those songs, rearranged scenes. We fixed some of the music, but people thought we had completely rewritten the whole thing. By the time they saw full, this is so much better, you know, because when they attach, if they don't like something, they can attach it to the whole play. So that was an interesting, and I'll tell you the, the, the last thing I'll say about this is I had a reading in the FPP in 2016 that tanked. Oh, the Mountains May Fall was the name of the play, and, um, and they hated it. The panelists didn't like it, and man, that hurt. I mean, I was like, I don't want to say I was devastated because you know, let's get it, let's get our priorities straight. This is this is not a devastating experience, but boy, my ego took a big tweak. It, I mean, it was like, ouch. I felt like I let my audience down. I felt like I let my actors down. I felt like I let myself down, my writing down. So I have put that one on the back burner, and it might be a couple of years before I even try to like touch that one again. I mean, I'm human. I admit it. I've got an ego still. I try to try to get rid of it, but it, it, that one hurt. So. I'm not trying to discourage anyone from giving feedback um, at the AFPP. I think it's really important. But it, it did make me more mindful of what I said, you know, because I can I could be cavalier, too, about what I like and what I didn't like. And that, you know, somebody's, somebody's out there who's worked hard. This isn't like they just did this as a hobby. They're putting their heart and soul into it. And so I guess it's how we frame our criticism. It was just a nice reminder to me. So what are you currently working on now? Oh, well... Uh, two projects, three projects now. I'm adapting Snow White for the Barter Players to do next summer. So that's from a fairy tale, but kind of a well-known one. And you know, I don't know if people know this about Grimm's fairy tales. They're about half a page long. So it's not, you've got to make up a lot of that world. And that's fun. I, I you know, I'm really, I'm digging trying to tie in the dwarves to Snow White and, and uh, the prince, etc., and like create that world, a new world that not seen before, so that's fun. I'm also reading Moby Dick to adapt Moby Dick eventually, if I can talk Katie Brown into it, for um, 2019 Barter Player Tour. Um, it's so weird to be thinking of things as being that far out. But see, they'll need to start rehearsing that next fall, and it's a big book. So that, and also Dax Dupuy, with whom I have written a lot of Barter Player shows. I think we've done like eight, a lot of musicals, Clementine, Mother Goose the Musical, Old Turtle and the Broken Truth, um, all the Christmas shows, Twas the Night Before Christmas, Rudolph, Santa Claus Coming to Town, Frosty, etc. Um, we are working on a mainstay, for, something for the AFPP for next year, called uh, Maud Muller. And it's based on the poem Maud Muller, and it's about regret. And these, and these two people who had met each other when they were younger in life and let the relationship, what could have been, pass by. And then the regret they felt throughout their life. 
and uh, trying to build this beautiful Appalachian. It's a very Appalachian story, or we have said it in, in Eastern Kentucky. And um, of all sad words of of something in men, the, mo- the saddest are these, it might have been. I, that, I'm paraphrasing the end of the poem. Um, so based on that, we're creating this really cool musical from that poem. We have been trying to get it together to do work on it for years, but we always have other things, commission work that comes up in between. But I told Dax, I said, okay, this is it. I'm doing the book, and she's doing the lyrics and music. And she is a poet with music. So I, I hope people come to see it. We'll have some clogging in there, too, something representative of the mountains. And um, it'll be a beautiful story with a, a beautiful um, message and with a beautiful ending and beautiful music. So I'm excited about that one. Well, thank you so much for joining okay, us on the show today. It was me. great it was talking great with you. Great chat with you, too. Thank you for listening to another episode of Theater Matters. You can hear this podcast live by going to wehcfm.com or tune in to 90.7 FM WEHC each Friday at 1.30 p.m. Don't forget to check out all the fantastic things Barter Theater is doing right now. To see the schedule and purchase tickets, visit our website at bartertheater.com or call and speak to our friendly box office staff at 276-628-3991. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again soon.